0: So you'll see that our series begins today and goes through the end of August. We'll start a series, uh, a new series at the beginning of September. Um, But we are, uh, for the next few weeks, going to be uh, praying the Psalms together, learning how to pray the Psalms together. Um, And the purpose is uh, for us to be formed as a community uh, in the prayer life of Jesus. Formed as a community in the prayer life of Jesus. This was his Prayer book. This is his uh, song book, um, and uh, this is going to give us the capacity uh, as a community to to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, and be able to pray alongside people compassionately in ways that track alongside the human experience. Um, and uh, this is a, a both a discipleship opportunity for us to go deeper with Jesus um, uh, in, in a way that the church has laid out for a century, for millennia. It's also a way that we are readying ourselves um, uh, in, in an inner sense for mission. We are preparing ourselves uh, for the, the difficult and glorious work of coming alongside people who experience profound pain, profound joy, um, so that we can walk with them into the presence of Christ. And I I want to not only teach you the psalms, but I want to encourage you as we go through this series to pray the psalms throughout the week. And maybe it is simply opening up the psalm for the day as laid out in the daily office in the Book of Common Prayer. But maybe it's also the psalms for you are an inspiration. The psalms are very artistic, and so artistic good art uh, inspires good art, and it inspires expression, and perhaps... Psalm 22 and the other psalms that we have in the series will inspire you to pray uh, yourself, your own prayers that have the flavor of the psalms. So um, uh, I want to, as a community, reflect the truth and the goodness and the beauty of our God together, and I believe that the psalms gives us an excellent channel in which we can do that together. So we're going to be looking at Psalm 22 today, um, but uh, next week, Psalm 30. We'll look at uh, the third week, the classic, Psalm 23, um, how do we pray in the midst of anxiety. We'll look at a prayer of repentance in Psalm 51 and on through the end of August. So I believe, as I've read, uh, studied, and reflected upon uh, this challenge that we have to learn how to pray the Psalms, I think one of our biggest obstacles as a community, and as Americans in learning how to pray the psalms is our use of language. It's our use of language. That's our biggest challenge, I believe, uh, in learning how to pray the psalms. American language, as I've experienced it, is happy talk. And maybe you know what I'm talking about. Happy talk is this positive, non-offensive language that broadcasts to the world, hey, I'm a low-maintenance functional person that you want to have around. I'm a safe person to date. I'm not going to be a high maintenance person. I'm a safe person to hire. I'm not going to be a complaining person. Um, And um, you won't regret having me over to your dinner party. I'm not going to be Debbie Downer at your dinner party because I'm going to use the happy talk and I'm going to have upbeat, light conversations. And so um, the key words here are great, fun, good, and loved it. (laughs) So for instance, I had a great weekend. I went sailing, I went camping by the lake, loved it. Um, Or, you know what, we broke up, it was mutual, and you know what, we both learned a lot, he's a great guy. (laughs) We both learned a lot, he's a great guy, it's all good. Yeah, man, my job is busy. Yeah, it's kind of stressful, they ask a lot of me. It is a stressful job. My boss is a little intense, um, so it does get stressful, but you know what, it's all good. It's all good, it's fine. It's stressful, it's, but I'm handling it, it's fine. Um, in addition to the happy talk, there's a lot of things that we cannot say. So yeah, First Amendment, we, have, we do have liberty to, to, you know, language of speech is, is free, but there's a lot of things that we cannot say, honestly. Um, uh, and the, 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 thing, the reason is that if you say the wrong thing, Whether it's personal reflection or views that you have, public views, um, it can can cost you your friendship. It can cost you relationships that mean a lot to you. And it can cost you your very career. Not just your job, it can cost you your career if you are caught saying something that goes against the rules. And the rules vary depending on the region that you live in. But there is a lot of things that we cannot say. So we've, we're careful with the language that we use. This is not all bad. Okay? We all need a filter, um, and, um, and we, we do need to watch what we say, and the Bible teaches that. Um, in American culture, there's a lot of things that you can't say that perhaps you, you might feel better if you did. Um, so here's what happy talk does. It keeps relationships intact by keeping di- the difficulties of our life hidden away carefully. And in many cases, it's what Walter Brueggemann calls cover-up speech. Cover-up speech. When you talk about things being good, being great, being all good, fine, it's cover-up speech. Everything's good. And think about the conversations that you have with, uh, with most people. It's, how are you? Fine, good. Um, and um, what happens is our, our connections keep, stay surface. They stay calm, they stay status quo, and they stay surface, right? Our passion, a lot of times, is missing from most of the interpersonal connections that we have. Um, it's not unlike tiptoeing in a minefield, right? Tiptoeing in a minefield. People engage you in conversation, they le- ask leading questions. Well, oh, yeah, you know, we tiptoe around the things in our life that, like, <laughs> if I told you about you know, how my job's really going, if I told you about how I'm really doing psychologically, if I told you about how my marriage really is, like, this, this conversation would get awkward fast, and you wouldn't be my friend anymore. Um, so it's all good. So we tiptoe tip through a minefield, and there's just things that we don't say. Um, uh, and so things stay surface. Now, here's what we learn from the Psalms, and especially here's what we're going to learn from Psalm 22 are you ready? Honesty evokes passion. Honesty evokes passion like nothing else can evoke passion. There are very few relationships where we can be totally honest, but in those relationships, time flies. Do you know why? Because we are so engaged, we are so involved in the conversation, we're so engaged in the relationship that 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 we finally have a safe place to to let off all the landmines, <laughs> you know what I mean? And then we don't have to tiptoe anymore. We can run free in the fields. Um, so in our relationships with others, in our relationships with God, in as much as we have the capacity to be honest, we have a place of passion. We have a relationship where there is a passionate connection. Um, there is freedom to give speech to what we truly think and, uh, and feel, and that evokes um, our truest selves. We actually invest in the relationship rather than manage and keep up the relationship. My dad is an avid gardener, and uh, one of the main tools that he used in the garden, and, and uh, I have so many memories of just watching him use this tool, it's called a rototiller. You know what a rototiller is? And I mean, he had the big one, he had the big rototiller, and it's this thing that has claws at the bottom and it's run by an engine. And so you hold it like this and you walk like this along the garden when you want to plant something. What happens is the claws in the rototiller turn and turn and turn and they go deep under the surface and they unearth what's underneath. They go beneath the surface and they, and they, they break up the ground. And what happens is when you run a rototiller enough times through the soil, the richness gets unearthed, and you can plant fruitful things in the soil. And so it becomes this very rich, very deep, very fruitful place, Um, but only when the surface things are unearthed. Now, the Psalms are honest. The Psalms reflect a soul that has been thoroughly rototilled, and very few things are loved it. Very few things are loved. Very few things are all good in the Psalms. That's because they're honest. And you know what? They're also passionate. There's more passion. There's a nuclear amount of passion for God in the Psalms. And there's an incredible amount of honesty in the Psalms. Here's uh, uh, what Walter Brueggemann says about praying the Psalms. He says, the, re- the Psalms reflect a bold faith. Now, in saying that, he's, he, it's, a, it's also a commentary on our speech, which is not very bold. Um, The Psalms reflect a bold faith wherein everything must be brought to speech and everything brought to speech must be addressed to God. I love that. Everything is brought to speech. Let everything be brought to speech and let everything brought to speech be expressed to God. And in that way, in the Psalms, God is like a blast chamber, a blast chamber that can safely um, withstand the most intense blasts that your soul can generate. And as a result, your soul is in a healthier place. And you are more intimately united with the living God. Honesty evokes passion. Uh, Psalm 22 um, Honesty be- teaches us that honesty before God evokes passion for God. Especially as it relates to our unfinished stories that have no resolution right now. Most of us are in the middle of a story that has not received resolution. And a lament is honest about that lack of resolution. It lets the lack of resolution hang out with all passion, hang out with all of its pain. It cries out poetically. It cries out passionately. The lack of resolution in my life creates pain, and I dare to lament to the living God about it. I lament and I am bold enough to let him hear what gives me the most pain because I do not see the meaning in my story right now. A lament cries that out boldly. So as we walk through this psalm, I've got three questions that are like the claws of the rototiller for us. Three questions that will unite us with the psalmist, with Jesus, and with the living God. Number one, how do you experience God's absence in your life? How do you experience God's absence? Secondly, in what ways are you under pressure right now? How are you under pressure right now? How are you feeling it? Number three, how have you experienced God's deliverance? Okay, so, so how, are you, uh, uh, how do you experience God's absence? In what ways are you under pressure right now? And how have you experienced God's deliverance? Um, Look with me in in, uh, Psalm 22, verses 1 and 2, and I believe uh, that is on page, um, someone know the page number? Yeah, page 10. So, listen for the absence of God as I read. My God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night I cry, but I find no rest. This is the cry of someone who feels utterly abandoned by God. He cries out by day and night, Perhaps liturgically, perhaps emotionally, perhaps spontaneously, perhaps in an ordered way. In any case, it's by day, it's by night, and God feels distant and far, okay? This is not simply his emotions. This is not simply, hey, I feel far from God. Some of us feel far from God, but we don't care because our lives are so comfortable. But his life isn't comfortable. He says that you're so far from saving me. There's something specific he he wants God to do, and God's not doing it. It's deliverance. It's a flesh and blood change in life circumstance that would let him know that God cares about my life, that he's with me, and that he's listening to my groaning. Here's a clue about what he has in the back of his mind. Verses 3 through 5, he's comparing his situation with other people who've done the same spiritual exercises. He says in verse 3, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. They were rescued. And you they trusted and they were put to shame. They trusted and they trusted and they trusted, and you came through for them. But I trusted, and I trusted, and I trusted, and it didn't work for me. This psalmist, David, was raised upon stories of God entering human history and saving his people. And what many commentators see in verses 3 through 5 is a connection to Exodus 15 and the deliverance of God's people from, from Egypt. And it's such a good story with such a good resolution. The people of God were sprung, they, they, were, they were leaving Egypt after dramatic plagues uh, put pressure on Pharaoh who set them free. And they're escaping slavery and escaping slavery and getting closer and closer. And then Pharaoh changes his mind and he <laughs> chases them with all of the military power he has. And the people of God are crying out, save us, God. And they're in between the Red Sea and the oncoming chariots of Pharaoh. And all of a sudden, God parts the Red Sea, and they go through. And then Pharaoh and his chariots come through, and God goes, guess what? I'm going to close in on you. And the horses are drowned, and the chariots are drowned, and the enemies of God get baptized, and they die. And the people of God cry out, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my salvation and my song. This is my God, I will praise him. This is my Father's God, and I will exalt him. It worked out so well for Moses and the Israelites. It worked out so well, the story had amazing resolution. You came through for them, and it worked. Their prayers worked. They cried out by day and by night, and it worked. I'm crying out by day and by night, and it didn't work. And that can be some of the most painful conversations we ever have with other people who believe in God. They prayed, and something worked out, but we prayed, and it's not working out. Here's the hardest part. It's the self-righteous tongue-clucking that comes your way when it doesn't work out for you. That is one of the most painful realities. If you believe in God's deliverance, and he doesn't come through for you, and he's come through for other people, and they just go, well, I don't think you did it right. Do you really trust? Did you really believe God? Did you really have enough faith? Did you do the, did you do the thing that I... That I, I the blogs that I, that I pointed you towards, or the special books that I had you read, you didn't do that, did you? Yeah, that's hard, isn't it? Man, that can be so frustrating and enraging. Listen to what the psalmist says. He felt that too. Verse six, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. If he delights in him. That's such a stinging word. If God really delights in you, oh, he'll probably deliver you. Maybe he doesn't delight in you. Did you actually believe him? Does God even exist? I think that's, that's a, growing, a growing refrain. Among, among those who don't believe in God. And just m- mocking those who do. If God really exists, he would have come through for you. And he would have come through th- for the North Koreans who died because of their faith. And he would have come through for all of the, the young and vulnerable who've been, who've been trafficked around the world for sex slavery. And wouldn't he come through for all these people? Maybe God not only doesn't love you, he probably doesn't exist. If he did, why would children suffer? If he did, why would all these things be unresolved? So, there's a lot of different ways we can feel this. Some, some of us feel the absence of God when we compare our current experience of God with our past experience of God. And we go, man, God really seemed to have been filling my life with his power and his love, and I felt it so deeply and so much, but now it feels different. Has something changed? Did I, did I, did I go, does God not love me anymore? Did I, am I, did I stop doing things right? or we compare with other people who have this very profound sense that God loves them and they're God's son or God's daughter and God's coming through for them. But man, it doesn't feel like that in my life. There's a lot of different ways we can feel that. Um, verses 9 through 11 uh, even takes us deeper into the pain. Yet you, God, are, are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me now. Now that I'm an adult, I mean, you were with me when I was a child. You brought me out of my mother's womb, and you you nourished me. You you were taking care of me. What happened? Why did you disengage? The arc of my story was like here, and then it started tanking, because somehow you forgot about me. Now that I'm involved and I've got kids, or I'm married, or, or I've got this intense job, now that I've moved into the city, somehow you've forgotten about me. But you were so close to me at camp. You were so close to me at this particular school. You were so close to me with these particular friends or faith community. And now I just feel so disconnected from you. What happened? What happened? It's interesting, Is uh, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, um, he was baptized by John the Baptist and there was this voice from heaven that everyone heard. I mean, it was, it's, it's in the Synoptic Gospels. It's a historic record. They heard the voice of the Father and he said over Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved son. He's my son. And I'm proud of him. I'm well pleased with him. Let everyone know it. It's like public vindication. You know what? Things can only get better from here the future is so bright i've got to wear shades <laughs> okay for those of you who may i don't know get that reference anyway but compare that baptism with the experience of his public execution i mean what a profound change he's he's being publicly executed publicly tortured shamed and people are saying he saved others yet he cannot save himself He trusts in God, that God deliver him if he loves him so much. That's what people were saying at the foot of the cross, echoing the words of Psalm 22. Man, what a difference. Jesus couldn't help but cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He felt that too. In an act of profound love, he was carrying out his his (laughs) ministry for you and I, and yet in that moment he felt God's profound absence So how do you feel God's absence? Maybe you feel God's absence because God did not come through for you in a way that seems absolutely logical with what the Bible says about him or what you've experienced about him before. I have been taught that you're loving. I've been taught that you're a mighty deliverer, and yet you let me experience molestation as a child. Or I experienced a mugging on the street. Where were you, God? Why didn't you help me? Why did you let me experience that amount of pain? We see someone pass away, someone who dies, way before their time, someone that everyone depended on, someone that everyone loved. We see them go to the grave, and yet we see other people who are committing profound acts of injustice continue to live, and we're like, man, when I see that, God, I just feel like you are completely disconnected and checked out from my life and from the world. Feeling God's absence and desiring his presence at the same time is part of the human experience. It's part of the psalmist experience. It was part of Jesus, the Son of God, and his experience. It is our lot, my friends, and God wants to hear about it. So how do you feel God's absence? Give it voice. Give it voice, maybe in poetry. Let Psalm 22 be your inspiration. Give it voice in prose. Give it voice before friends. Give it voice in solitude. Let God hear how you desire him, how you miss him. Give it voice. Answer with honesty, because from honesty comes passion. Honesty evokes passion. Second question, in what ways are you under pressure? How are you experiencing the pressures of life right now? How is life squeezing you? Verses 12 through 20 describe some of what the pressure of what the psalmist is going through. Verse 12 says this. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. Now friends, this is a description of people who are acting like savage animals. People who are acting like savage animals, they're aggressive and dangerous enemies, coming at, coming at the psalmist like, a, like an animal. Um, they swirl and attack weakness. And this is something we have to understand about the way the world works, is that human cruelty is attracted to human weakness. Human cruelty is attracted to human weakness. That is why people with mental disabilities, the elderly, um, people who have already been abused those who have no legal help, those who are in financial strain, are the most likely to experience violence and exploitation, whether it be sexual, whether it be financial, whether it be legal. Violence and exploitation seeks out those who are weak, those who are already weak. It's attracted to them. And so um, the weaker you are, the more wolves and lions you're going to experience in life, that you're going to have to fight off. They have to pray through, and the psalmist is experiencing weakness. And all of a sudden, the vultures come out, and the lions come out, and they're seeking him out. Verses fourteen and fifty describe the effect that this has on him. He says, "I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My my heart is like wax; it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You." lay me in the dust of death so courage and hope are ebbing away for the psalmist um, his inner strength is fading the, the heart uh, for the psalmist was the center of strength and courage and the bones were understood to be kind of the strong structure supporting his life and both are melting away, both are getting out of joint and scrunched up and he's under pressure his tongue sticks to the roof of his mouth, he can't talk he can't defend himself. It's like that dream when you're, in, when you're in trouble and you open your mouth to defend yourself and you just can't. You just can't talk because you're under pressure and you're melting. Your strength is being dried up. You can't defend yourself anymore. And then at the end of verse 15, you lay me in the dust of death. It's interesting, at the beginning of the psalm, where's God? God, why have you forsaken me? You're gone, you're gone. Now here God is. And he's pushing him down pushing him down into the dust, get reunited with the dust, go back to the grave, from dust you came, from dust you you shall return, return there now. That's what he's feeling from God. It's time to die. In the presence of all of these animals, seeking your destruction. Verse 16 through 18 describes what's going to happen next. Dogs encompass me, A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. So, these dogs are people who are going to profit from his weakness. People who are going to to profit from him failing. They're going to take up the remains. Um, And he's kind of like a walking skeleton now, he's a lame duck. They're going to just take it all. And he gives three lines of plea in verses 19 through 21. He says, He says, But you don't be far off, O God. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid and deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. This is my precious life, God. This is the only life I have. And it's ebbing away. He felt the pressure. How do you feel the pressure? right now in your life. Maybe you're feeling financial pressure. There's financial demands coming on you. You only have so many financial resources, and, uh, and the pressure is on. Or perhaps you feel the pressure of family. Perhaps you have uh, parents that need your help now. Or perhaps you have young kids. Or perhaps you have someone in your family that lives in a different state really going through it right now, and they're calling on you for help. Um, some of you are uh, seeking to live a a life of chastity you believe in the vision of of sexual chastity that you will not have sexual expression until you are in a sacramental marriage between a man and a woman and so you are seeking to live that out but that's putting pressure on you right now and um, and you feel that pressure you feel temptation and you're fighting it but you feel that it's taking a toll on you perhaps that's the pressure that you feel or perhaps you feel psychological pressure. There is mental weaknesses that you have or mental illnesses that you're fighting, and those um, can feel like demons. Those can feel like animals coming at you, pulling you down. Maybe you're fighting, you're, you're in recovery right now. You're in recovery for addiction, and the pressure to go back is really intense, and you feel that pressure. You feel your inner demons kind of calling out, you, out to you, trying to drag you back in to the muck, and to the mire. A lot of us feel professional pressure, pressure to perform. What have you done for me lately? Are you living up to all of the expectations? We're studying for a test or an exam. We're getting ready for a licensure. We are doing the best we can to finish something professionally, and it's intense and it's hard. Some of us have people in our life who really would profit from our weaknesses. They would profit from our failures, and they're watching us. They're watching to see if we're going to fall. They're watching to see if we're going to falter, because when we do, they're ready. What situations cause you to lose heart? Jesus felt the weight of the world on his shoulders, and and he he was calling out to his Father, even as he sought to bring life and salvation and healing to the world he was under tremendous, tremendous pressure, tremendous pressure to give up the task. He even prayed in Gethsemane, "Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. This is almost too much. I can't handle the pressure." And the scriptures say that he, his sweat was like blood, because he felt the pressure. Undoubtedly, Jesus prayed Psalm twenty-two not only on the cross but before the cross, because like like the psalmist, he felt the pressure. And it is part of the human experience to feel this pressure. Finally, how has God delivered you? How has God delivered you? Verse 21 is interesting. Look with me at it. It's very interesting. So the first line is, save me from the mouth of the lion. And the second line is, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Isn't that interesting? He's asking for deliverance from the lion in one line which we know is metaphorical for a person. But on the other hand, he's saying, you've delivered me from the horns of the wild oxen. Now the question is, did he get delivered mid psalm? Did something happen where he's like, oh, rescue me. Oh, you rescued me. (laughs) So this is art. This is poetry. He's crying out to God for deliverance and feeling the pressure, and that's real, but he's also experiencing God's deliverance. And that's real, too. And it's interesting. It starts out very, very specific. And it broadens, and it broadens, and it gets more hopeful, and more hopeful, and more hopeful. So it starts out, he he gets a specific deliverance from something that's specifically haunting him. The horns of the wild oxen are on him, up in his grill, taking him down. And he is somehow delivered in a way that brings incredible relief. This exclamation point, rightly so, at the end of verse 21. He doesn't elaborate, but we know what it happens. Um, it's kind of an impressionistic move. Some of you are, are familiar with impressionistic art. It's kind of an impressionistic move from the, 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 the scene at the beginning of the psalm. is like he's in a public execution, and all around him are animals, and he's a walking skeleton. And then there's this shift where he's delivered, and he's crying out in praise to the Lord for what, what is happening and what will happen In the way of God's deliverance and in the way of the story being resolved in a way that is cosmic and beautiful. Um, So, how have you experienced a specific deliverance from God? Maybe you uh, were given a job that you were praying for, or you hadn't been able to have a child for many years and you had a child, or perhaps you found an exceptional caregiver that helped you go from one stage of recovery all the way up to the next perhaps you found a friend a church a family food shelter lodging medical care something that came through it was completely free for you free medical help free legal help perhaps it was some kind of personal connection that you were never anticipating but you felt distinctly god caring about your life pay attention to those things in as much as you pay attention to the To the things that cause you pain and put pressure on you. Pay attention and give testimony before the face of God. Give it speech. Put it to speech and put that speech before the face of God. Something good God has done for you. Some specific way he has come through for you. Whether it be financial or legal or personal. The psalmist sees God restoring the story of his life. He says in verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. Do you feel the passion? Passion born of honesty. It's coming through. All you offering offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all of you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him. But he has heard when he cried out to him, he heard, let us praise him, giving voice in faith to the deliverance of God, both present and future and past. And what this does is it opens up his imagination. He can then see things that he could not see before, and it's a beautiful picture of the resolution of not only his own life, but of the story of, the, of God and his world Um, He says in verse 26, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. The afflicted that I see right now that don't have enough to eat, in the Lord they will have enough to eat. Those who seek him, who feel his absence right now, end of verse 26, shall praise the Lord. They will find expression. May your hearts live forever, he says. All the ends of the earth, verse 27, shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. In verse 30, he says, Posterity shall serve him. It will be told to the coming generation, um, uh, told of the Lord to the coming generation, and they shall come and proclaim righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. He can see people who haven't even been born yet learning about the ways of the Lord. And he can see all the tribes and families of the earth, of every nationality, including all of those who have been oppressed, all of those whose lives have been cut short, all of those who have been victims because of human cruelty, crying out and praising the Lord for his kingship, crying out and praising the Lord for making the story right. He sees the arc of the story once plummeting down to the depths, now dramatically, in a surprise fashion, going all the way up to the heights, higher than it's ever gone before, so that all the families of the earth can cosmically cosmically praise the name of a good God who has never left his people, and who has never left this story to spin into chaos, and who will not leave or abandon you and your story, in your pressure, in your feelings of abandonment. The psalmist His imagination is opened up and our imaginations can be opened up too to the North Koreans and to the victims of sex trafficking and to all of those whose lives have been cut short and all of those who are oppressed and all of those who deal with mental illnesses and all of those who are fighting addiction and all of those who are completely stressed out because of their young children and all of those who have secrets that they feel like they have no one to tell. Praising the name of the Lord with absolute freedom and all the families of the earth being united in that praise. That's where a lament can lead us, friends. Right into the presence of the living God, into what will be the completion of his story. Honesty evokes passion, and honesty before the face of God evokes passion for God. I want to invite you to let Psalm 22 lead you into worship. Some worship songs out there are way too happy talk. And I'm so grateful. <laughs> I'm, I'm so grateful for our for Dan and the musicians and the songs that they choose because they're evocative and they're honest. But I want to invite you to resist happy talk and let your honesty before God lead you into worship, uniting you with Jesus and uniting you with God. I want to also let, uh, invite you to let Psalm 22 lead you into mission because you know what when you can pray a psalm like this you can weep with those who weep and we have people in our neighborhood and in our city for whom no one will weep with them no one will walk with them no one will pray with them there's an opportunity to do that right here in uptown uh, this very weekend I'll talk a little bit about that in in the announcements let Psalm 22 lead you into mission when it changes you on the inside you will be ready you will be ready To weep with those who weep, who need to lament, who need the freedom to lament and to cry out to the Lord. Let us be honest before God. He is with us and he will hear us. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.